I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 22. And once you've found your place and are fully comfortable, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's Word together, please. Acts chapter 22, and actually I think what I'll do is I will back up to verse 37 of Acts 21 just to give the context. Thanks. The word of God says, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brothers and start off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished." But it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus at about noon, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told about everything that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I came into Damascus, being led by the hand by those who were with me. Now a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law, a well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing nearby, he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I looked up at him, and he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, and to see the righteous one, and to hear a message from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins by calling on his name. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing nearby and approving and watching over the cloaks of those who were killing him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you away, sorry, send you far away to the Gentiles. They listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a man from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered that he be brought into the barracks, saying that he was to be interrogated by flogging so that he would find the reason why they were shouting against him that way. <clears throat> but when they had stretched him out with straps, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to Paul, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship for a large sum of money. And Paul said, But I was actually born a citizen. 
Therefore, those who were about to interrogate him immediately backed away from him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. Now on the next day, wanting to know for certain why Paul had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble. And he brought Paul down and placed him before them. And we trust that God will add blessing to the reading of his word. Please have a seat. To set the context of our text, we just want to remember that Paul has arrived in Jerusalem with his eight Gentile Christian brothers. They've delivered the Gentile church's collection to the Jewish churches. He's been sent by the Jerusalem elders to purify himself and pay the costs for the completion of the vows that four men are under. He's been found and falsely accused by the Asian Jews of bringing Gentiles into the forbidden area of the temple. A riot has ensued. Paul's been seized and dragged out of the temple, and the doors have slammed shut to Paul and the gospel. And as Paul is being beaten by his Judaistic Jewish brothers, the Romans arrive, led by Claudius Lysias, and Paul is arrested and bound and carried, literally, to the tops of the steps of the barracks, where, as we saw, he asked to speak to the Jews, which brings us to our text in which Luke is recounting for Theophilus, for the Gentile church, and for us, Paul's defense, his explanation of God's transforming grace in his life. It was God's grace setting him apart uh, from his childhood onward. It was God's grace that met him on Damascus Road. It was God's grace appointing Paul to know God's will, to see God's Son, to hear God's message and be God's witness. And it was God in grace who sent him to the Gentiles with the gospel. Paul's experience of God's grace has radically transformed him from what he once was to what he is now as he stands at the top of the steps. I kind of wonder if the Jews looking up at him didn't recognize him and suddenly realized that where once before he was tall and upright, now he's hunched and bent over because of the repeated scourgings and floggings that have wrecked the muscles in his back and legs. A face that was once youthful and full of zeal for God was now lined and worn from care and worry and much labor for the Lord. He had been transformed in more ways than one. But Paul's experience of God's grace has transformed him. And it's the very same grace that you and I are already experiencing or can experience here and now today. Nobody is beyond the saving, transforming grace of God. God's grace is sufficient for you. Just as it was for Paul and for millions besides, God's grace will transform you. Just as he transformed Paul and millions of others, God's grace will enable you to endure all the Christian life will bring, just as it enabled Paul to endure. And this text is very much what Peter described in 1 Peter 3.15 as giving a defense for the hope that is within us with gentleness and respect. My hope, my purpose for us in this message is that we who are experiencing God's transforming grace will leave rejoicing even more in that grace, even more to de- determined to live by faith in God's future grace, as John Piper would put it. But for those who are not yet experiencing that grace, my prayer, my hope, My goal this morning is that you would come to know and experience God's grace through the text of Scripture as they're preached, as the Spirit of God would open your hearts and your minds to understand the message and believe. So firstly, I want us to notice that there is God's grace to set apart. Notice verses 1 to 3 of chapter 22. Paul addresses the Jews with the same words that Stephen used in Acts 7 and verse 2 in his message to the council just before he was martyred. He said, hear me, brethren and fathers. And Paul wrote, or said, brethren and fathers, hear my defense. Very same words. And you know, as I was sitting there thinking about this yesterday afternoon in my study, I was thinking, I wonder as he stood there, 
in the very same state as Stephen once was, arrested, in trouble, an angry crowd in front of him, if that scene wasn't going through his mind all those years ago, Stephen's brilliant defense, the enraged crowd, the shouts, the shoving, ultimately the sickening thought of stones raining down on the praying Stephen as he, Paul, watched over the coats who were those who were stoning him. I wonder if he didn't think back and Stephen's words come back to mind. Paul begins by declaring his personal history. He's a Jew. In Philippians 3 verse 5, Paul adds that he was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee. He was as Judaistic as Judaism got. Law-abiding parents, pure pure Hebrew lineage as far back as Jacob's 12 sons, born in Tarsus, raised in Jerusalem, educated strictly according to the law by a very highly respected Gamaliel. Paul was no peripheral rebel outcast Jew. He was not one who was never quite Jewish enough. Paul was at the height of Judaism as a devout, zealous Pharisee, but Paul did not yet know God's saving and transforming grace. Notice also in verses 3 to 5 how he describes his life. Being zealous for God just as you all are today. His was not a zeal according to knowledge. His was a zeal for God without knowledge, without God's grace. Listen to what he said. He wrote this in Romans 10, and he wrote Romans just before he came to Jerusalem at this point. And he wrote this. He says, Romans 10, 1 to 3, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, that's the Jews, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. He's just told them that he was zealous for God just as you all are today. He's making an equation there. Just as he once was, so they are. And he describes them as having a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Verse 3, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Reading those words yesterday and just thinking about them, I had to wonder if Paul wasn't just describing them and him. He was describing himself and reflecting on his own circumstances before coming to know the grace of God. He had a zeal for God. He was running around doing all kinds of stuff. He was the most highly educated, very active Pharisee and a Jew of his time, and he was doing all this work out of a zeal for God, but it was misdirected. There was no grace. There was no true knowledge of what God was actually doing, and so he runs off like that. He had a knowledge less grace, less zeal for God that led him to bind and pursue and imprison those who follow Christ. Paul is very subtly communicating to them, by the way, that just as he had once sinned against God by persecuting the church, so also they were sinning by persecuting him as a follower of Jesus. His past sin against God was their present sin against God. Paul described his personal experience in Galatians 1.15 as God setting him apart from his mother's womb. And by his description of his childhood, his youth, and his education, we can see God's grace setting him apart. Not to relate his context and experience to ours, we might say it like this. Uh, born in a Christian home, in a good city, raised in a good neighborhood, receiving a good Christian education... And just as Paul was clearly thankful for such blessing, so we should we be thankful for God's grace in our lives on that level. If that was your experience, I I was thinking yesterday, I've been alive now for just about 54 years. A couple more, a week, no, a month and a bit, 54 years. I've been going to church for 53 out of 54 years. It's pretty amazing, and I think about it. I can never remember not having a church or a Bible or hymn books or theology or Christianity in my context. I look back and I give thanks to God. I give thanks for the grace of God that preserved and set him apart. Maybe you should stop and give thanks to God for the grace of God that preserved you through all those growing up years and set you apart. Give thanks 
for faithful Sunday school teachers and elders and pastors and teachers and mentors. Give thanks to God for His grace in the years you lived before you came to a saving knowledge of Christ. He was preserving you. Look back on my life. And even in the years I, I, I came to know the gospel and really understand it fully as a young man. I made a profession of faith when I was 13, but my life was pretty unchristian for a number of years there. I look back and I realize how many times, again and again and again, God preserved me and protected me and watched over me in those years. And I give thanks to God for that grace. But I want to add something else here. There is a very subtle danger in a Christian upbringing. There's a danger of being raised in a Christian home. It's too easy to see ourselves as Christians simply because we were raised by Christian parents. We were taught to behave in a Christian way and how not to behave. We're we're possibly deceiving ourselves into thinking that because we look like and speak like and act like and even think like the Christians around us, we are in fact Christian. It's one of the devil's most subtle and dangerous lies. Without a personal experience of God's grace bringing you to repentance of sin and faith in Him, there is no salvation. Becoming Christian is purely a work of God's saving grace in our lives. It is not passed on by father to son like genetics. There must be a work of grace in you. It frightens me when I hear young people ask, How did you come to know the Lord? While I was raised in a Christian home, I've always been a Christian. And I go, no, no, that, that's, that's not true. There must be a moment like Paul, like we're going to see in a moment when God confronted Paul. So secondly, there is grace to save. Notice in verses 6 to 11, Paul's Damascus Road experience. I want you to notice a very key phrase that just stuck out to me that I think we can all relate to. Look what he says in the first part of verse 6. He says, but it happened... That, I, that as I was on my way and approaching Damascus at noon, the phrase, as I was on my way, and that stuck out to me. And I believe with all my heart, the Spirit of God just really highlighted that phrase for really good reasons. It, it, it means more than just the direction, the, the way he was going. He took, you know, uh, the, the, the M3 down to Damascus, turned left, and, and carried on through the stoplights, and there he was. No, it doesn't mean that. I think it means far more than that. Paul was going on his way. In his zeal for God, he was not walking in God's ways. In his devout, pharisaic law-keeping, he was not going God's way. In persecuting the church, he was acting in ignorance, but not God's way. My dear friend, I want to ask you a question this morning. Pardon me if this is blunt. Which way are you going? On whose way are you walking and going? I want you to know there's two possibilities. You're either on God's way leading to life eternal, or you're on every other way that leads to God's judgment and hell. Uh, In the bulletin, you'll notice, uh, John did a biography of uh, John Bunyan, and Heather's been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, so she started putting Pilgrim's Progress in the bulletin. We're going to keep doing that, keep reading it together. Pilgrim's Progress is a great book. You know why? It's fully explaining exactly what I'm talking about. He understood fully he was going the wrong way, that the whole of the world in which he lived was all going the way of the enemy, the way of the wicked one, and it led to destruction. So my dear friend, which way are you going? Living a life entirely for yourself is not God's way. Living life to gain the whole world is not God's way. Living life careless of what his word says is not God's way. Living life apart from God's way leads only to God's judgment in hell. That's the reality of the scriptures. The Bible says in Proverbs 14, verse 12, There is a way which seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 
sorry, the first Psalm, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Literally, it means the way of the wicked leads to destruction. And Jesus said the exact same thing in Matthew 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Like all who experience God's grace, Paul started off on his own way, going in his own direction. And God came to him. Like all who experienced God's grace, Paul's experience began with God coming to him while he was going his own way, confronting him about his sin and converting him to the, to the way, as in the way, the truth, and the life, the Lord Jesus Christ, his way of faith and obedience. Paul was going his own way, but God in Christ stopped him in his tracks. And I think every one of us who truly knows the Lord can remember that moment when God stopped us in our tracks. I can remember it as clear as it's yesterday. Sitting on a camp bunk and just knowing that I was absolutely lost. But knowing also that there was hope, there was salvation in Jesus Christ. God, first of all, came to him. He's heading towards Damascus. He's going his own way. And Paul, all of a, sorry, Saul all of a sudden is stopped. If God were not to come to him, if he were not to come to us, we would never reach out to him. We have no interest in God. We are dead in our sins, spiritually insensitive to God and the gospel. The Bible says in Romans 3, verses 10 and 11, quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. None. But this is the wonderful thing about God's grace. The fact that not one of us comes seeking for God, but he comes to us, magnifies God's grace immensely. Doesn't it? You know, we were chatting, um, Rod and I, a couple days ago, talking about ministry. And I I said, Rod, if if I was the Lord, I never would have chosen me. And he laughed and he said, no, I wouldn't have chosen you either. I mean, no, we wouldn't have. I look at my life, I look at the sin that I had committed, I look at the sin I've committed since then, I think to myself, why in the world would God choose me? There's nothing in me, nothing that I've done, nothing that merits any favor with God, but God in rich and tremendous grace. He comes to Paul, and he came to each one of us who truly know the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's coming to you. He doesn't just come, he also confronts Look what he says. He calls Saul's name twice for striking emphasis, and God immediately confronts Saul or Paul about his sin. Why are you persecuting me? One thing we must understand is that God saves us from his wrath against us for our sin against him. Saul and Paul is persecuting Jesus himself. Paul, like every one of us, needs to be confronted with the reality that he, like us, was a sinner living in sin. Too many times I've heard testimonies to salvation that emphasize conversion from a, a, bad, <clears throat> excuse me, a bad experience or a bad life to a good one. No, no, no. We are converted from being dead in sin to alive in Christ. We're saved from God's judgment on our sin, which we are irrefutably guilty of. The risen, glorified Jesus Christ questions Paul, Why are you persecuting me? Now, obviously, given that Paul is persecuting the church, and the church is Christ's body, to persecute the church is to persecute Christ. But Jesus' question also reveals that our sin is always, ultimately, against God. Every sin is against the God who wrote the law in our hearts and gave us his law and his word. David said it. After committing adultery with Bathsheba and conspiring to murder her husband and lying and deceiving the people about it and thinking he got away with it all, after God confronted him in his confession of sin, which he writes in Psalm 51 and verse 4, he said, against you... 
You only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Paul was confronted by Jesus Christ about his sin. And brothers and sisters in Christ, that's the one issue that we have to deal with. Is sin. Sin is what separates us from God. Sin is what causes, like we saw in Deuteronomy, we're reading that passage there. All the broken relationships, all the difficulties, all the troubles, they're all as an outflow of sin. And all of us have sinned against God. And Paul was confronted. But notice his response to Jesus. He says two things, two questions. Who are you, Lord? And a bit later, what shall I do, Lord? Now, strictly speaking, Paul's use of kirios, Lord, has two possible meanings. Sir, meaning a respectful address given to either God or man. It could have been that. Or it means Lord, meaning God himself. I thought, this doesn't make sense. He's just being respectful. I mean, he is being respectful, but not just that. So given Paul's situation, the blinding light from heaven at noontime, Jesus revealing his omniscient knowledge of all Paul's actions, the reference to Paul's sin and the revelation that this is Jesus himself who is speaking to him from heaven, I have no doubt at all that Paul meant Lord God, not merely Sir. Notice also his intention behind his questions. He wants to know who is speaking and discovers it's Jesus. Then he wants to know what Jesus Christ, speaking from heaven, would have him to do. Paul's second question displays an immediate submission to Christ. That's only possible when there is a saving, converting work of God in his heart. That moment, a significant change has taken place in Paul's heart from proud, zealous Pharisee persecuting and pursuing Jesus' followers to a humble, submissive, obedient man of God. Paul has experienced God's grace for conversion and salvation, and he immediately obeys. He can't get there by himself because he's blind, so they take him by the hand and they lead him to Damascus, and he waits, praying till Ananias comes. And when Ananias speaks the words and he can see, he immediately looks up, and when Ananias tells him, wants to do next day he goes into the temple and starts preaching the gospel or into the synagogue sorry in Damascus from disobedient going his own way a radical change to obedient and submissive and going God's way whatever the cost might be but don't miss the big picture here Paul is explaining to the Judaistic Jews God's grace toward him He recognized that he certainly did not deserve grace or mercy. 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 to 16, he writes this, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. That's Paul's words about his conversion. And brothers and sisters, we can put ourselves in Paul's shoes and we can understand exactly. We know what he means when he writes those words. I say it partly in jest, but partly in truth, too. The only inaccurate statement in the Bible when he says, of whom I was foremost, and I immediately say to Paul, no, I was the worst sinner, not you. Paul says, no, I was the worst sinner. Because we both understand. I understand to a little bit. He now in heaven understands to an infinitely greater detail the reality of his sin and the immenseness of God's grace in saving him. But God, in great grace, being rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved Paul and you and I, even when we were dead in sins, made us alive together with Christ, for it is by grace that you have been saved. The unmerited favor of God. And you know, beloved, when we stop and think about our sin and we look to the cross and we see there Jesus hanging and dying on a cross for our sin, we understand grace, compassion, kindness, 
mercy bought and paid for in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and freely given to us. So my question is, is that your experience? As you're listening to me drone on and on, can you resonate with Paul's experience and say, yeah, that was me. That is me. I get it. I was going my way, but God in grace came to me. He confronted me about my sin and revealed himself to me as my Savior. He converted me, and I know that I am saved. Can you say that? I have the conviction within my heart that I am truly saved by God's grace. Give thanks to God for such grace. Give glory to God for such grace and mercy and love. Or maybe you're not sure if you're truly saved and you want to know, is there evidence of salvation in my life? Well, let me ask you, do you love God? It's not that hard in some senses because God is the perfect and best and chiefest of all beings. Wonderful in his love and his grace. It's not hard to love God in that sense. Are you trusting in him to save you? Do you love the Christians around you? Well, that's a bit more difficult because some of us are pretty prickly, I'll I'll tell you. Do you love righteousness? And holiness, in some senses, not, it's not that hard either. Here's the hard one. Do you hate your sin with a deep loathing? That's the hard one. Because for a lot of people, they want to hang on to God with one hand and have one hand just around the corner hanging on to their favorite sin with the other. And they don't want to let go. If there is a work of grace in your life, there will be an increasing love for God in your life and your heart. If there is a work of God's grace in your life, there will be increasing hatred and loathing and detesting of the sin that you fall back into again and again and again. Read Romans 7. You see Paul's heart comes shining through his own hatred of sin. If that is not your experience, but you have a longing, a yearning within your heart for God's mercy and love and forgiveness to know that everything is right between you and God, that very longing has been put there by God himself, and I call you to respond to it. Believe the gospel message with all your heart. Cry out to God for help to believe it. Repent of sin. Turn away from it and turn away, turn towards God in faith, and you will have that conviction. I was talking to someone uh, at length the last couple of weeks about their state of their soul and, and sharing a little bit with Peter as we were working in there in the week. And he said, tell him just to go into a room, close the door, get on his knees and cry out to God for forgiveness and don't get up until he knows it. I thought, yep, that's, that's good advice. That's exactly right. If you're not sure... Go into a room on your own. Shut the door. Get on your knees before the living God and cry out to God to give you that conviction that you truly belong to him, that you've truly experienced a work of grace in your life. Well, we need to move on. I want you to notice thirdly, thirdly that there is God's grace to sanctify. Notice in verses 11 and 12, Paul, the once proud, zealous, devout Pharisee, he's been blinded, now must be led by the hand and taken to Damascus. In Acts 9, reveals Ananias' prayer and instructions from God to come to Paul. And here we see, in minuscule form, the wonderful grace of God in the godly fellowship that he provides for Paul and us. Ananias comes. He deals with Paul's blindness. He communicates God's will for him, and he urges Paul to submit to baptism as a public, physical demonstration of his faith in God, his experience of the grace of God, calling on God in prayer. God in grace brings older, mature Christian brothers and sisters alongside to instruct and encourage and exhort and help us to walk in our walk with God. We're surrounded by the grace of God in godly Christian fellowship. And it's a tragedy when we as Christians place a very low priority and mean together with God's people for God's fellowship. Why? Because God put them in our lives 
so that we might be built up and strengthened and encouraged and exhorted and occasionally smack on the back of the head to do the right thing. Those are annoying moments, but they're helpful, I'll tell you. I've had a few. And Ananias comes and he calls him Brother Saul, welcomes him as a family member, receive your sight. At the very moment, he looks up and he said to him, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear a message from his mouth, for you will be a witness. And he tells him what his Christian life is going to be like. God in grace brings older, godly Christian brothers and sisters alongside of us. Brother and sister in Christ, if you're stumbling and struggling in your walk with the Lord, one of my first questions is going to be, how much time do you spend with God's people? How much time are you spending with the word open and the knees bent? Because that's what we're going to talk about in a second. I want to focus on Ananias' words to Paul. Listen to what he said in verses 14 and 15. He said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to, number one, know his will. Secondly, to see the righteous one. Thirdly, to hear an utterance from his mouth. And fourthly, for you will be a witness for him to all men of what you've seen and heard. Brothers and sisters, all of those are our blessings in Christ also. God in grace has saved us not only to rescue us from hell, which would have been wonderful, and it is wonderful, and it's fantastic, but he does so much more. God in grace has saved us not only to rescue us from hell, but he saved us and appointed us to know his will, to see his son, to hear his words, and to be his witnesses. And the effect of those four wonderful graces is that we are being being made more and more like Christ. We're being sanctified through them. So first of all, God saved us in grace to know his will. Now in Paul's context... As an apostle of Christ, he was given the great responsibility to reveal God's will for the church through his writings. He heard revelations from God. He was one of 40 spirit-inspired writers of Scripture. Now, that's obviously not our experience. But we have been saved by God's grace to know and obey God's will, as God revealed it to us in his word through men like Paul. The Old and New Testament scriptures being given by divine inspiration are God's word, the only infallible rule for faith and practice. Everything you need to live this Christian life is in this book. The Spirit of God takes what's in this book and applies it to our hearts and we can live in obedience knowing the will of God. As somebody once asked, I think it was uh, Mark Twain, about the Bible. He said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that I'm not doing. That's what bothers me. He was absolutely right. He said, I read the Bible, but you know, there's, I read Revelation and I just get a headache and I don't understand what it's all about. No problem. Leave Revelation for now. Go back to the Gospels and read them. Go back to the epistles and read them. Do you understand what they're saying? Yes. Are you doing it? Well, you know, Okay, we've been given to know the will of God through the word of God. God in grace saved us to know and obey his will for our personal lives of godliness and holiness, for our marriages, our families, our work, and our church lives. In knowing and obeying God's will, we experience more of God's grace transforming us into the image of Christ. In knowing and obeying God's will, we experience tremendous joy because we are doing what God designed and created us to do. But herein lies the challenge. It doesn't end with merely knowing it. Knowing God's will demands our submission, our obedience, and our increasing faith in God as we obey. And it's difficult. But the wonderful news is he's given us his spirit to live within us, to enable us and empower us and help us and provoke us and encourage us as we carry on. Secondly, God in grace saved us to see his son, the righteous one. And Paul, in his own experience, was privileged to see the physical Christ, the righteous one in his visible heavenly glory. And you and I, through the pages, through the eyes of faith and the pages of scripture, by a work of God's Holy Spirit, we are also privileged to see Christ in his glory through the eyes of faith. 
What's the Bible say? 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all, every believer, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. What's, it, what's the mirror? What's he talking about? Take a wild guess. He says, beholding as in a mirror. Let me see if I can give you a hint. There's the mirror. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of... Sorry. There it is. Uh, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. We see Christ in his word. The Spirit of God opens our eyes to see. The Bible tells us the same passage. Paul writes and says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But then he goes on to say, two verses later, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's God's gracious work in our hearts to unveil the glory of his son to us that by faith we like Paul may see the righteous one and in seeing him we're being transformed to be like him grace (laughs) it's all grace it's all God's kindness to us How immense is the grace of God that not only did he rescue us from hell, he gave us his word to reveal his will. He gave us his word that we might see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and be changed by what we see. Thirdly, Paul was saved by God to hear an utterance from his mouth. Now, Paul had already heard the voice of Christ speaking to him. Paul would again hear the audible voice of Christ speaking to him. Paul would know the experience of writing Scripture and realizing that he was doing so. The Spirit of God was at work in him to impart the message, the Word of God, to the people of God. And again, obviously, that's not our experience, to hear a physical voice. But we are privileged tremendously to hear the message of God through the Scriptures and just as surely as knowing God's will demands our submission and our obedience and our growing faith in God, so also hearing the Word through our daily reading and studying and meditating and hearing of sermons demands our submission, our obedience, and our ever-increasing faith in Christ. You see, those two sound kind of similar. You're right, they do. They're very similar. Slightly different. But brother and sister in Christ, when you realize that God has given us everything we need in grace to be changed, to become like Christ, we have to stop for a moment and just bow our heads in thanksgiving and worship for the grace of God that doesn't just save us and rescue us from wrath, but transforms us to make us like Jesus. And fourthly, which is our fourth main point too, God's grace in sending us. Notice again verses 15 and 16. Ananias, having finished communicating these things, tells Paul to get up and be baptized, to make that public profession of faith. And I have no doubt that he certainly was. Paul then relates his return to Jerusalem. And this is where it gets interesting. He goes into the temple to pray. And God warns him of an impending doom of the Jews in Jerusalem not hearing his witness for Christ and the gospel. And God sends him to the Gentiles. And here the Jews boil over. Wait a minute, Paul. You've gone way too far now. Their spiritual pride collides with the spiritual exclusivity and they will not hear any more of this from him to actually suggest that their God who had chosen them, not the Gentiles, to be his people, to have his laws, to worship in his temple, to offer his sacrifice, was now extending his hand to the Gentiles, unwashed, defiling, unclean Gentiles, that they may be included with them. That was absolute blasphemy for them to hear that. But that's, again, it's just tremendous grace to include the Gentiles and Jews together into his one people, to be, as Peter described it, to Gentile believers in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, his chosen people, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, his people, his possession. Why? 
so that we might proclaim the excellencies of Christ who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And beyond that to suggest that God had spoken such things in the temple and in an area that was prohibited to the Gentiles from entering on pain of death, never could these things be for the Judaistic Jews and their rage erupts. You read the phrase, you might have wondered why they say it. They started raising their voices and they're throwing off their cloaks and they're grabbing handfuls of dust and they're throwing it into the air. Do you know what they're doing? It's, it's a picture form of saying, let's stone him. As the dust flies up in the air, it's a picture of, of stones falling on him. Paul. They're furious. And it's one of the tragedies, isn't it? I like my Christianity. I'm happy that I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to get up and go and tell anybody else about it. And I say those words to my own conviction. I want to finish with God's words to Paul through Ananias and the ones spoken to to him by God in the temple. You will be a witness for him to all people of what you've seen and heard. And God's words, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. You go back to the scene of the cross. The moment of Jesus' death on the cross, there was a sound like a massive roar coming from inside the temple. You say, what was that? I read a book many, many years ago uh, by a guy named Alfred Adersheim who wrote a book on the temple, and uh, it was called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And he described the temple veil, and when I've always thought of the temple veil like tablecloth kind of material, he said it was probably about a foot thick. It was a massive, massive, heavy piece of material hanging down from the ceiling of the, the Holy of Holies. The moment of Jesus' death as he died, the, the temple was torn from top to bottom with a roar as it came apart. You could imagine the sound that made. And we all like to say that the way into the presence of God was clear. I'm going to add it and maybe just change it slightly and say the way for God to come out among his people was now provided. You remember when they built the tabernacle way back in the, in the wilderness? Multiple layers of separation, a wall, a bronze altar, a washing laver, a a curtain in front of the holy place, another curtain in front of the holy of holies, the outside uh, wall thing, whatever it was. Also, if you notice, the distance between where they, they camped and where the tabernacle actually was, was a huge distance. So in order to actually get close to the tabernacle, you had to go a long way. God was completely cut off and separated from his people. But in Christ dying on the cross, his finished work accepted by the Father, the the veil by God, if you like, was just torn apart and said, now I can come out amongst my people. And the gospel is to go out into all the corners of the world. And everybody is to know the message that Jesus Christ died on a cross to rescue us from God's wrath. And standing in that temple, as he's praying, God gives him that message, go out. And be a witness. God displayed his grace. He displayed his grace in the cross of Christ as Jesus Christ, truly man, truly God, died in our place to bear our punishment for our sin before a righteous and holy God. Holy God. God's grace is experienced as he comes to us and confronts us and converts us. God's grace is experienced as he forgives our sin. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. He fills us with his joy, his peace. He reveals his will to us, and God's grace to us transforms us into the image of his Son. And we are to go out like Adam, who was created as a little statue of God, a little living statue amongst creation to represent God to all the rest of creation. Now we are new creations of God, like little statues of Christ, and we represent God to all the world around us as we take the message and go. That's God's grace. That's God's wonderful, transforming grace in our lives. My friends sitting here this morning, do you know that grace? Do you know what it means to be truly saved? Do you know what it means 
to have that conviction deep in your own heart that you have trusted in Christ, that there is forgiveness for you. My friend, if you don't know what that is, please come and talk to me. Let me help you. Let me show you the scriptures and point you in the right direction. Or you can do as Peter advised. Go into your room on your own. Get down on your knees with your Bible and cry out to God for salvation. And don't get up until you have that conviction. What a great God we serve. Amen. How do we begin? There is no one like you. There is no one like our God. There's no one like our God in saving us and transforming us and changing us to be like Christ. None at all. What a great God and a Savior we have this morning. I'm going to take a moment. I'm going to give thanks for the the bread, and then we'll distribute it and partake of it together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give thanks again for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our God. Father, we give thanks for grace, tremendous grace, grace that preserved us before we came to know you, grace in which you came and confronted us about our sin, your grace in converting us making us who once were dead in sins and trespasses and making us alive in Christ. Grace that gave us the faith to believe. Grace that poured out mercy and love all over us. And Father, we realize and we affirm before you that there is nothing in any of us that warrants or merits that grace. It is just grace. And Father, we give thanks. We bow before you, O God, and we thank you and we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death on a cross, for his suffering and the agony that he endured, his body that was given for us, his blood that was shed for us. Father, we give thanks for his death, that moment when he pushed down the nails in his hands and feet and shouted, It's finished. Father, we give thanks for his burial in a tomb, a borrowed tomb. We give thanks, O God, for the fact that three days later, exactly as he promised, you raised him from dead, from death. And Father, we give thanks that his resurrection is for our justification. We give thanks, O God, that just as he was raised from the dead, so also, Lord, we have that same expectation. Father, we give thanks for the Spirit of God that you poured out on us, that you filled each of us us with to work with the Word of God to change and transform us into the image of Christ. And Father, we give thanks that there is a day coming sooner for some than others, Father, a day coming when the work in us will be finished and we will be just like Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We cry out to you, O God, for those sitting here this morning, one, two, three, maybe even more, Lord, that are wrestling, knowing the reality of the gospel, knowing the reality of where they're going if they die, but still struggling. Father, we pray that you would open their eyes to see the glory of the Lord Jesus, to see the truth of the gospel, to see the reality of what it means to be saved. Give them the faith to believe and turn them, O God, we pray. Father, now as we would take this little piece of bread, we would pass the bread from hand to hand. And Father, we would share in that loaf. Father, we give thanks for what it reminds us of of the Lord Jesus Christ his body given for us. Father, we give thanks for the salvation we have in Christ, and we do so in Jesus' precious name. Amen.